Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Almost Here around the corner of technology. So I have my second guest today from Singularity University, uh, Eleanor Watson. And you go by Nell, is that right? Yeah, normally, yeah. That's, that's correct. Okay. Nell Watson. And as for introductions, um, you know, I mentioned this offline. Uh, the people I've spoken to from Singularity University have so many credentials and accomplishments, I found it's better to let them do their own intro. So if you wouldn't mind, you know, for the audience, can you give a, a brief... Uh, overview of your accomplishments and the work that you do. Sure. Um, yeah, I've, I've had a bit of an bit of an unusual career. I um, I went straight into industry at an early age, gained a lot of experience uh, very rapidly. Ended up teaching postgrad computer science at the age of 24. Uh, co-founded a graffiti arts company, which is now based in Hong Kong. Uh, then went back into technology, and uh, I uh, set up a computer vision company, uh, which can translate two pictures of a person into a 3D model of that person with all of the measurements for, say, fitting of clothing or for tracking size and shape for gym and that sort of thing. After I'd done that for a few years, I, uh, I brought on board um, some very skilled um, executives and, and uh, uh, very skilled tech uh, exec engineers uh, to help me take the company forward and I started to get asked to do more and more speaking and that's when I uh, studied at Singularity University and then joined the faculty shortly thereafter and uh, now right. I give a lot of talks in, all over the world and my latest project involves machine ethics, so trying to give a sense of morality to machines and enable machines wow. to be able to make uh, calculations and judgment calls about ethical dilemmas. Uh, uh, let's talk about that then, because it's, yeah, I, I didn't even know that machines were at the point where we could uh, attempt to program ethics into them. Are there machines out there? Is there AI out there that's sufficiently advanced where um, you know it would need any ethics or uh, morals yes, programmed I mean. into it? And how would you even do that? Yeah, I mean the the problem is new in a sense, uh, but it's it's definitely arrived already, and it's going to be a even bigger deal in the near future. For example, we already have bots which are trading on the commodity markets, for example, and uh, they're, they're doing all of this, this trading autonomously, far faster than any human ever could. But sometimes right. they get spooked when somebody you know, tweets some, some fake news or something like that, and uh, there's a, a sudden drop in the market as these bots sell certain stocks, you know. Uh, and then they very, very, very quickly recover again once, once they realize that the news hasn't been corroborated and it's probably fake. 
But another of these bots could spot these kinds of events as being a great way of buying low instead of uh, buying at a higher rate. And so they could game the markets in these sorts of ways if they didn't have a set of ethics uh, built into them. On a more day-to-day -day level, we're now starting to interact with bots which are setting up our meetings and things like that. And maybe you don't particularly want to meet someone, so you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm booked up all week. And the bot says, oh, no, no, you're free on Thursday. <laughs> Right. You know, we don't want that. We, we, we want machines which are able to, uh, to understand that we don't always necessarily say what we mean. And finally, hmm. there are consumer-oriented electronics coming out. Uh, there's one in Japan called the iPal, and it's a robot which is programmed to basically act as kind of like a nanny. It's something that can interact with your children and your children can ask it questions about the world and it will respond and that sort of thing. The problem is that, well, the way that we interact with children is an even more delicate affair than you know, human beings interacting with each other. And so we now have technologies which can interact with our children and there are no ethical interlocks in the kinds of behaviors or the topics or that sort of thing. You know, I think that every parent should have an ability to, to decide for themselves what those interactions should and should not cover. And mm. at the moment, there is no way to do that. So what we're doing with OpenS very rapidly is trying to find out the answers. And to do that, we are crowdsourcing the space of ethics. So at OpenS.org, we have a range of different scenarios, and people can create a scenario, and then variations of that scenario, which um, may provide outcomes which are more or less preferable, and those can be ranked and compared. And in so doing, we are helping to train machines in the, the best way to respond to a given situation. Now, there are two ways of programming a machine, essentially. There's the top-down and there's the bottom-up. So top-down is making explicit rules about things, and that mm -hmm. takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. The other way is bottom-up, and that's to basically look at the data, you know, look through books, look through children's stories, look through the newspapers, and for the machine to try and figure out the rules from the data. Now, if you can do that, then it's, it's a fast way of learning a lot of different uh, nuances, which is great, but it's a very difficult thing to make explicit or to amend after the fact, or to really understand what the rules that it's picking up actually are. So what we are working on is a hybrid method of mm programming, which is both top-down and bottom-up. We're working with... Um, we're working with oh, so you'd have a rules. few... Um, so you'd have some base rules, and then you'd have a, a degree of flexibility on top of that? Absolutely correct. So the, hmm. the hard rules are the things like basic norms, universal values, the things which are 
most important to, to protect and things which are essentially the same across all cultures in time and space, you know, theft and assault and these sorts of things. It doesn't matter whether you're in Reykjavik or Rajasthan, people will tend to respond to those in the same way. But right. there's a big difference between an evil action and a jerk move, right? Uh, so we, we want to prohibit a, a narrow core of kind of quote-unquote evil or wrong actions while still allowing quote-unquote jerk moves, right? The, uh, the things which aren't explicitly uh, dangerous to society but are more about how a machine relates to other human beings or other machines even, we think that can be socialized. So just how you train a pet or a young human being to act in ways that you find preferable, we can do the same for machines. So in so doing, we can harness the best approaches of the top down and the bottom up. Hmm. This, you know, it seems uh, pretty tricky. Like there's a lot of room for uh, all kinds of good or bad, unintentional things to happen. Seems like a really difficult yeah. problem. Yeah. How far have you taken this? Have you tried this in uh, in any given system? Is any are there any systems sophisticated enough to implement this and to watch what happens? That's what we're working on at the moment. So we are linking it in via an API. That's you know a technique of linking uh, one piece of technology into another, and we are linking it into drones so that um, drones can know whether or not to be in a certain space given a range of conditions, such as whether um, a, a, an emergency has been declared uh, in an area close to that area of operation, for example, or if there is a disaster situation or an emergency situation, different rules apply. So that's one of the examples that we're working on to help to prove uh, in a real use case these kinds of um, protocols. Have you figured out um, any good sandbox environments where you could start testing uh, various things? You know, like let's say for the for the trading, it seems like that's most amenable to like a sandbox environment where you could have algorithms go at it in a simulated environment and try different rules and see what they do. Definitely, that's that's something we are working on at the moment. We are trying to find the right game that would be a very nice sandbox for these kinds of rules to, to play with or for an agent to use within these kinds of games. Um, it's quite tricky to find one that, that is ideal for this purpose, but if anyone out there has some ideas, we would love to hear about it at openf.org. What happens, though, when um, you, know, you program ethics into machines and uh, do the machines then become responsible for what they do at a higher level because now they're expected to have judgments? I mean, doesn't this open the door to, and, and, you know, and how could you prosecute a machine? I mean, what happens in a liability situation if something goes wrong and someone gets hurt? I would think that um, this would open up the creators to big-time problems or liability. Potentially, yes. I think who has liability for certain issues is, is going to be a very big question in the years to come. 
I think hmm. there are even opportunities in the market for some people to absorb the risk uh, and to be professional bag holders. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> you maybe have a human, yeah, a human in the loop whose main function is basically to uh, provide nominal oversight and to uh, absorb liability if, you know, the, the worst happens. I... Hmm. I'm very interested and very curious about the role of corporations within our society. Corporations are legal persons. They have personhood, and that actually gives them rights, not quite under the Constitution or that sort of thing, but they do have rights to property or rights to sue and to be sued, um, which is actually more of a right than a... Um, than a bad thing because it, it actually means that one is legally responsible. Now, I'm not sure when machines will be capable of being uh, held as responsible for their actions. I think that's probably going to be quite some way away. Uh, but I do think that we are already starting to see some hybrid organizations which are part human, part corporation, and part machine. And those are called distributed autonomous organizations, sometimes also called distributed autonomous corporations. Mm. In essence, you have a corporation or an organization which is running in the cloud, which is distributed, which has some sort of AI or an intelligence controlling the allocation of resources, and it has money, whether that's um, you know, hard currency or whether it's bitcoins, it doesn't really matter. It can right. pay human beings to go and do actions for it on its behalf and it can pay its own server fees and trade on its own uh, merit. And mm -hmm. we're starting to see for the first time this kind of hybrid of humans, AIs and corporations for the first time. And I think it's here that we're likely to see the first quote-unquote digital persons. Well, what's the, uh, yeah, if a machine has, you know, if a machine can op operate independently, let's say, I, you know, I, I've heard the example of a car, it can buy its own gas, it can pick up its own passengers, you know, a self-driving car. Um, As Brad Peterson himself would say, you will know your autonomous car is truly autonomous when it decides to go to the beach without you. <laughs> exactly. But, um... You know, I could see maybe programming ethics into machines. Even that seems, you know, pretty difficult, far-fetched. But what about will and desire? I mean, what's, why have um, a distributed autonomous organization? What's, what good would it do and what bad would it do? Well, they're already being used today for things like running charities or providing services, which under normal circumstances would require a lot of administrative overhead, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of organizational churn, which would increase the cost of that service to the point of it not being very helpful to people. But because you can have this organization that runs itself in the cloud, it makes things a lot more efficient. So things like charities, uh, mutual assurance, uh, even things potentially like some sort of a credit union type 
organization can be run in these kinds of structures. So there is actually a lot of benefit to them. They also offer new models of compensation. So we've seen companies like Hyperloop, which was inspired, of course, by Elon Musk. They have a model whereby they uh, bring engineers on board to the project from all over the world. And they do little pieces of this massive project. And in return, they get small stock options in the eventual future value of the enterprise. Mm. With distributed autonomous organizations, you can have what's called smart contracts. And these smart contracts are pieces of code which automatically execute given certain uh, circumstances. So if something has been fulfilled, then it will dispense the money. What this means is as a freelance operator, you don't need to go chasing people uh, or threatening them with letters in order to get your cash in theory, as long as you've done the work. On a more simple level, a smart contract could unlock a trust fund for somebody as soon as they turn the age of 21, for example, right, based upon their their birth date. Another thing that we can do with distributed autonomous organizations in the future is imagine you have an AI-controlled company that's sitting in the cloud somewhere, and it's trading, you know, it's buying and selling stuff, and it's providing value to the market through its trading and its commercial activities. But it's also generating profit. And what if that profit is then shared with human beings? So you can have human shareholders, which are gaining the benefit of this enterprise that runs itself. I think that this could be an exciting alternative to government welfare. So it's a way of being able to provide money, real money, to real people in a way that you don't have to first take that money off somebody else, right? So it's uh, a free market uh, compatible method of providing government welfare to people. And I'm very excited by that model, and I think it could be very disruptive in the near future. So this, yeah, this sounds like it could be ideal for certain government functions <clears throat> to make it more efficient and less corruptible. Yes, absolutely. You know, to provide services. <clears throat> but I also see yes, a division I... between a truly decentralized and autonomous organization. It seems, it feels like it would have to be the government would have to allow its existence, and it, it seems it will be under the purview of government because that's supposedly for the public good. It doesn't seem like um, in, order to, in order for it to be truly autonomous that it could be privately created and set on its own to run. And uh, I don't know. It seems like there would well, be callback provisions where you'd have to take it back in under your command if something went wrong or that kind of thing. See, that's, that, that's, that's, that's the theory. Um, in practice, it, it may not work that way. Uh, it, in, when corporations, you know, they're all incorporated somewhere, right, in theory. And it's a way of people tacitly agreeing that, okay, we're getting together and 
we're going to imagine this new entity and we're going to give it a name and people are going to do stuff for that entity and you know so long as it keeps its nose clean as an entity then it can continue to exist and nobody's going to force it to shut down or declare bankruptcy or that sort of thing however it would be possible to have a distributed autonomous organization that isn't incorporated in any particular place. It exists, hmm. it does its thing, but there's no birth certificate of incorporation for the company in any vault at somewhere. And so you could deploy this thing, and in theory, there would not be a callback provision. It would go off and do its own thing and pay for its own server fees. And because it's distributed, there's no single node that you can attack or shut down. So it might be very difficult to shut these things down in the near future. Now, we already have problems today mm. with botnets, right? These um, yep. infected computers and now increasingly infected Internet of Things, smart devices, everything from kettles to fridges to cars are all part of this IoT network. And in theory, Every one of them can be compromised and now can join in these kinds of botnets, which have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of devices that are controlled like, like zombie puppets from some hacker right. somewhere. Um, these things are already unable to be shut down. And I fear that distributed autonomous organizations, which have more intelligence to them and can trade and uh, have commercial economic impact in the world rather than just destroying things or denying service. Um, I think that could be a, a very big deal in, in the years to come and a significant societal problem. It's another reason why I'm so interested in machine ethics. Yeah, okay, I see. That's what I was going to ask you. Even when people try to make something virtuous and work well, um, you know, you talked about smart contracts. Again, what if something goes wrong and you can't stop the contract from fulfilling or, you know, let's say like, like you said, um, someone's trust is going to be available to them at age 18, but a medical event happens and they really need the money earlier. You know, they, yeah. I'm sure the machines could be very efficient, but it sounds like they also could be ruthless when uh, special conditions need to apply. So I would think that people would want to backdoor into it. You know, I'm, I would guess governments would, at some point want to mandate a backdoor or a way to, you know, have a kill switch in case the worst happens? Mm, yeah, I, I agree. Um, there are two lines of thought or two major camps of mindset on this issue. To some people, code is law. And the fact that nobody can interfere with one of these smart contracts once it's been set up is a very, very good thing because it provides a great deal of security. And mm. no judge, no jury, no notary, nobody can come around and annul anything or uh, amend anything at all without the uh, explicit permission of both parties. There's another camp that says there should be a backdoor. Um, we should have room for new interpretations of information and that sort of thing. It remains to be seen which camp is going to be the preeminent one. Mm. 
However, in either case, for a contract to be valid, there are some ethical constraints. Um, you know, there has to be a lot of, um, both parties need to understand the contract. They need to understand the terms of the contract. Uh, they both need to have disclosure of any um, significant details, you know, disclosed to them beforehand. Otherwise, in any of these circumstances, contracts are not void. And there are a number of different reasons why a contract can and should be annulled and would be by a court. This is another reason why openness is important and where it can play a role in helping to create a sort of automated judiciary or, or notary system for checking whether a contract itself is valid or um, should or shouldn't be executed upon. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be a downer, but <laughs> this could be even worse because a lot of the, um, the laws that get passed in any nation, uh, they get passed without everyone's explicit approval for the most part. People are expected to have knowledge of the law. You know, ignorance is no excuse is a common doctrine. Um, mm. The law itself may be pages and pages and pages and so dense and Byzantine that no one has read it. Um, so if you add on uh, the ability for something not to be stopped, you know, or distributed or automated, or, it, it just seems like it, it, it could be far worse and it could be used for tremendous abuse if it wasn't uh, done the right way. I, I, I think so, yes. Um, in theory, however, two people who, two or more people that, that make a contract as a, as a shared agreement between them um, should be quite careful when they, when they get into it. Of course, not everybody uh, reads the fine print or maybe somebody isn't quite uh, at the time. They may be somewhat incapacitated or distracted or... Uh, not right. uh, in, in a reasonable condition to make these kinds of judgments. I agree. Um, but it, it's, I mean, it's you, an interesting... We're, yeah, we're it's going to see a lot of Yeah, we're going to see a lot of different forms of law. You know, today you have, you know, maybe you have common law or continental law and you have statute law and company bylaws and you know, federal laws and international laws, uh, tax laws, all these kinds of things. Those are all different mm -hmm. levels of, you know, civil law. But we're going to see new layers of machine law or smart contract law or people agreeing to create new common standards or new ways of doing things which are outside of the... Um, the legal norms, but make sense for them or make sense for that particular situation. So I think on the one hand, a lot of lawyers, particularly paralegals, particularly junior lawyers are going to be disrupted in the near future by algorithms, which can do a lot of jurisprudence. You know, you know, whenever mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, the law shows on TV, you know, that, that young, plucky lawyer is sweating through right. these books at 4 a.m. looking for old cases and that sort of thing. You know, algorithms can do that sort of thing incredibly efficiently these days. Yeah. However, 
you know, whilst a lot of the the grunt work of of the legal system is probably going to be automated in the next few years, there are new opportunities with these new systems of emerging corporate and smart contract law. So it's a, it's a mixed blessing, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I didn't mean to be negative about it. It just points out uh, it's it is fascinating. So it just points out all kinds of possible scenarios. It's, and no one knows what's going to happen, but it's going to be very interesting for sure. Huh. Um, any other facets of um, machine ethics? Any, uh, I don't know, do you think there'll be the uh, the scenario where a machine actually survives the Turing test and um, becomes so fluid and so similar to humans that it's indistinguishable from them? Uh, that's, a, that's a tall order. I think it's it's uh, it's going to be a very long time before machines are going to be truly indistinguishable from human beings. Uh, mm. But I think in a surprisingly short amount of time, we'll stop caring. <laughs> we'll really stop mm. caring about the differences. Um, I'm continually amazed by the sense of intention that people often give to even very simple machines, uh, very simple robots and things like that. There are you know, robot pack mules operating in the battlefields today, and you know the, the Marines don't want to abandon them. You know they see them as kind of another member of the unit, similar to hmm. how uh, humans would perceive canine units today. Right. Um, I think. Surprisingly, we, we can become very accustomed and very um, bonded uh, with machines, um, somewhat intelligent machines. So I don't think machines are going to be quite like humans anytime soon, but we are going to, uh, we're going to love them on some level or we're going to, we're going to appreciate them or become familiar uh, and miss them if they're not around, probably uh, very, very soon. <laughs> You're right. I mean, someone can love their trusty knife or think their toaster hates them or, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I've experienced that stuff too. So, yeah, even non-intelligent machines, it's weird. You do have a bond with them, certain ones, you know. That's right. And, you know, if it's if it's cute, if it has an ability to communicate with you, uh, if it saves the day uh, in some mm. sort of situation, you know, that, that's that, those are the sorts of ways that we really start to connect with other other things, even very simple agents. So what do you think the first manifestations of this um, ethics-assisted um, uh, algorithms will be? What do you think the first uh, few successful uh, use cases will be? I think in the narrow niche of smart contracts, uh, that's probably where we'll see the first live deployments, um, basically verifying that smart contracts are uh, legit, that, that, um, that, that they are appropriate. Uh, another area is in providing ethical analyses and providing a proof that a smart contract or even uh, an organization's uh, commercial activities, for example, that they are in fact ethical 
um, but without actually going into what those activities are or saying that a contract is kosher without mm. actually saying what the contract actually specifies. At the moment, there is no way to do that. So that's the problem with smart contracts. If it's um, in a public ledger, essentially mm -hmm. anybody can have a peek at, at what the, the nature of the contract entails. So um, rather we should keep the contract private, but be able to provide a proof that shows that whatever the contract has in it, it is in fact um, valid and ethical. That's what we're working on at the moment. Huh. Would that be, it sounds similar to uh, zero knowledge proofs that like Zcash and Monero use or Zcash uses? Precisely, yes, exactly. Zero knowledge proofs and huh. another emerging technique called homomorphic encryption are mm -hmm. enabling new ways of being able to find a proof of something without knowing the finer details. In a sense, if you imagine me making like a like a, a shadow on the wall, holding up an object and seeing that shadow, you could make a reasonable assumption that I was holding up an apple or a hammer or any other number of objects simply by looking at the, the shadow cast on the wall. But you wouldn't know the color or the texture necessarily of the apple or the hammer. This is in right. very loose terms, how these kinds of technologies work. And they're going to be a very oh. big deal uh, in the very near future. Oh, it's like or someone speaking with their face blurred out and their voice distorted, but, you know, they're a witness to something. <laughs> That's another good example. That's a very good example, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Okay. Huh. Um, any thought to the, uh, you know, again, I don't want to bring up the negative, but it just comes up in my mind. Uh, do you think there'll be the, po I mean, I'm sure there'll be the possibility of criminals making uh, pseudo-ethical AI systems that appear to be uh, virtuous on the surface, but um, are allowed to go autonomous and then, uh, you know, have hidden things that can cause problems? Yes, and that's something else that we're working on as well is having basically a, a public ledger um, so that any autonomous system that you're dealing with, you can go up and look at the um, look at the rule set of the system. Now, again, like with the, the smart contracts, a lot of corporations will not want anybody else to know what their secret proprietary ethical rule set is. But again, we can analyze that and basically provide a proof that whatever the rule set is, it complies with at least these, these basic norms of safety. Um, gotcha. I think that's, that's going to be very, very important. Whatever autonomous system you're dealing with, you want to know whether it is at least basically safe. And then secondly, whether it is compatible with your personal values. I think those two things are going to be very important in any human interaction with the machine or with your oh. pet machine interacting with any other pet machine. So do you think that, um, you know, um, 
a cryptologically sound blockchain may be required for some of these new forms of, um, you know, companies or autonomous companies to operate because it will give visibility into what's been done? Yeah, I think this quasi-visibility, the zero-knowledge-proof protocols, are, mm. are going to enable people to do actual commercial activities uh, with public ledgers and blockchains. Otherwise, on some level, you know, everybody can see your dirty laundry or your proprietary um, clever stuff that you've written. So nobody wants right. that. Um, but we do want to know that whatever it is, it's safe uh, and it's decent. So that's the sort of service that, uh, that we're working on providing in the very near future. Huh. Any um, use cases or uh, possible future applications you've heard of that blew you away just because we're crazy, even you, a forward thinker? <laughs> well, a couple. I'm curious about flipping it and being able to do an ethical analysis of human beings to figure out the values that are most important to somebody uh, or their their level of moral development. You know, you compare the moral development of a six-year-old is usually different from a 16-year-old versus a 60-year-old. Uh, as we go through life and acquire experience, hopefully in theory, our sense of morality will evolve over time. It ought to. Um, so we can maybe start to do these kinds of analyses so that we can provide services which are best suited to given individuals um, based upon their own ethical frameworks internal to themselves. Hmm. Something else is in the far future, since you asked about it, yep. I wonder if it might be possible someday to create a machine which is super moral. So, you know, we have these thoughts about machines which are have superhuman strength or which are super intelligent. But what if they had super morality? If they were able to be more moral than um, the greatest spiritual leaders uh, of, of humanity or on a similar power, at least. I think that would be pretty interesting, you know, to have a machine that can help to guide and steer our moral decision making and, um, you know, help us to sort of get a little bit closer to the light, so to speak, <laughs> to get away from our monkey mind and closer to our Vulcan mind, so to speak. Right. Huh. Yeah, because you would think the um, machine would be uh, incorruptible unless something you know, was, was programmed into it to become like that. But interesting. There might be a problem in the sense that it might cause problems for society <laughs> to some degree. Um, you know, growing pains in a sense. It's not always fun to come to a new moral realization, um, yes. usually it's very inconvenient. <laughs> usually having an increase in moral awareness means uh, having to do more work in order to um, stay on the right side of self-esteem 
uh, and uh, the sort of karma of the universe, if you will. Um, so not everybody wants to hear about, you know, the sort of mistakes that they're necessarily making. And, you know, a few hundred years ago, we had something called the, the Protestant Reformation. And, the, you know, that was a new system of values that came along. And some people thought they were good and some people thought they weren't so good. And, you know, entire villages in Germany just like, disappeared <laughs> um, yeah. it was a very tumultuous time and so I wonder if machines on some level do create new values for us like some sort of machine ubermensch so to speak um, it might be a, a time of strife as society starts to adjust right. to these new values you know just far future speculation yeah well what, something that could be a lot more near term is what if you had a um an AI system that uh, you programmed in the cultural norms of in all societies that we know of, and then you could use it when working on a project that you, you know, if you're going to collaborate or your um, your work is going to affect other countries, other cultures, it could advise you, you know, hey, watch out, this culture would consider that rude or immoral, or you know, an advisor, like a, a cultural advisor, essentially. That's, that's a fantastic concept, and I, I, I really agree with it, and I think it's important. Um, not even just across cultures, although that is a big deal, but even, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you have a, a pet machine that's, that's, you know, doing stuff, it should probably talk to grandma in a different way from uh, hoodlum <laughs> in an alley, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and inverting those two uh, ideal responses would probably um, not be uh, a good situation. So, yeah, I think, um, I think machines need to be socialized over time in what is uh, ideal given a certain situation, certain individual, and absolutely, as you say, a certain culture or time and place. Very good. Well, um, I get the feeling I could talk to you for a very long time about a lot of great stuff, but uh, I think that's pretty good for now. Any any last items that uh, you wanted to bring up that I didn't bring up? Mm -hmm. Not in particular, um, other than okay. a call to action for anyone who is interested in machine ethics and in learning more. I'd love you to check out openf.org. That's O-P-E-N-E-T-H.org, and help to map the space of ethics alongside our growing community. Okay, very good. Well, I appreciate your time. This has been a really interesting interview, and I think it's going to be uh, great for listeners. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.